The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can listen to old archive shows as well ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to uh, talk to you all again. Yeah, good morning, Scott. Good morning, Scott. Obviously, some uh, not only with the pandemic that's going on, but uh, also demonstrations going on uh, throughout North America. Uh, Unsettling times right now. Is that reflected in the markets? What does that mean? Well, kind of interesting, you know, the, the markets absolutely take a different view of things. They look at profitability of companies. Um, yes, certain things like COVID, originally they looked at, okay, well, how could this affect, you know, the profitability of different companies? And, and certainly a lot of companies that affected them greatly. Other companies actually went down and came right back up. A, a perfect example would be like Peloton stock, where everybody's now staying at home and riding a virtual bike, basically. Um, so, yes, and then, and of course, uh, the lots of, you know, stressing kind of news. But, uh, and a lot of the times people relate stress news or, or fairly stressful news, rather, to, okay, this must be hurting my portfolio. And that's not necessarily the case. In fact, that's often been not the case. And you have to look at, does that affect how, many, how much uh, Coca-Cola people buy or other uh, products they may buy? And in fact, if anything, you, you pay just may notice this, the traffic on the road is, is greater uh, there's actually a little bit of a rush hour now. I actually went on the road. So you can see people are, are starting to open up and, and starting to buy, uh, perhaps maybe not going into restaurants, but takeout and deliveries way up. So things are starting to shift, and you can see the spending has actually gone from a 57% decrease in spending to only 13% decrease in spending in a period of two months. So there's a big change there, and spending has gone way up. So, uh, and I'm going to touch on that a little later, too, on this show. Oh, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people have been wondering, well, with all this uncertainty and instability and, like, south of the border, et cetera, why is the stock market actually still going up? And uh, and, and as Don mentioned, you know, the stock market is, is looking out 6 to 10 to 12 months in assessing where corporate profitability is and that uh, share prices today, the stock market today, reflects where things are going to be in the future. It's a, as we say, it's a barometer, not a thermometer. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think there are, there are still questions on the economic side, um, you know, people, you know, confidence levels, et cetera. I mean, I think we're all enjoying cheaper gas prices. That's nice. And, uh, and certain, certain areas of our lives, which we probably have come to appreciate more during the, this time. Um, and retail is going to be an interesting one. And in particular, um, commercial real estate i was uh, visiting a my doctor this week who'd opened up his clinic for the first time uh on june 2nd and you know and not a lot of patients and he said he knows colleagues in the ottawa area that are large practices where they'd have 100 patients a day and they're basically just shutting down uh closing the doors they um so he was talking about the shift that we're having in terms of our health care 
from the perspective of do we, you know, can patients get a, get by with a, a video meeting instead of having to be face-to-face with our doctor? And obviously there will be times when you need to be face-to-face. So um, there's going to be a shift. There's no doubt about it. But at the end of the day, life is going to go on. And in fact, I was reflecting on our show today, thinking about a client of mine who retired uh, a year ago. And, you know, for, from her perspective, it's uh, this has certainly been a period of uncertainty. Certainly uh, she's been looking to find information about what she can be doing or should should be doing in times like this as well. But I was looking back in terms of her plan and what we put together, and everything still holds true today. In fact, there's very little that has changed. We've done some rebalancing in the portfolio, but I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of history here, and people might be able to... Um, reflect on this or maybe see some parallels in their own situation as well. So we'll call our my client Judy, and uh, Judy is uh, 66 and was divorced about 15 years ago, and so she's on her own, been on her own now for a, many, a number of years, uh, and she retired last year at age 65, and she was uh, in the public health department and had a small pension from there, not very much. Um, in fact, she still has her own little business which uh, she does consulting. She has contracts that are set for now for right through to about age 70, so uh, four more years, 2024. And it doesn't bring in a lot of money, but, you know, we've often talked about what a part-time job means in terms of supplementing your income. And it also gives her a focus, something to do, too, for the next several years. So that's all, it's about 1200 a month that she gets from her contracts and that'll net of expenses, and that'll carry on for another four years. Um, her mother, uh, Dorothy, is uh, age 91 and in long-term care in the Castle Lodge here, and, um, you know, she, and she's not doing well. Um, under the recent situation, uh, she's been okay, no, no issues from her health perspective, but uh, she certainly worries about her uh, in that situation. And Two siblings, um, two sisters, one Amy, and we'll call them Amy and Kim. And um, uh, Kim is actually on social assistance. She's struggled over the years with just, you know, keeping stability in terms of her job. So there's certain concerns that uh, Judy had about uh, her sister Kim. And in just in reviewing some of her, you know, from a, uh, a legal perspective, uh, she's made Amy her executor and uh, also her power of attorney for her property. But she made uh, Amy and Kim power of attorney for her personal care. So if they need to make decisions together about her health, uh, she felt comfortable doing that. So, and Judy hasn't been been traveling much because of her mom. And uh, so the thought, her goal was while her mom's alive, she's going to continue to make sure she's okay and the traveling will um, will be reduced. So... Looking at her situation a year ago, Judy's main goals were she was concerned about old age security clawback at age 71 and, you know, wondering about should I be converting my RRSP to a RIF, what what strategies should I think about there. She was motivated to reduce her current taxes um, and it was important to her to reduce her estate taxes. And uh, from a tax perspective, she also had a $10,000 capital loss that was a carry forward from uh, from the previous year. In terms of retirement, her expenses she's fairly fairly modest at 3,500 a month, uh, so 42,000 net per year. 
And then on top of that, she pays 250 a month for an investment loan. And that was an interesting twist because we don't often see anything of somebody age 65, you know, borrowing money to invest. But uh, Judy had a very um, high risk tolerance, uh, I would say moderate aggressive. So on a scale of one to five, one conservative, five aggressive, she was a, a four out of five. So she had a $100,000 loan where she is paying interest only, so about 250 a month. And that interest is, is tax deductible, so part of a tax saving strategy. Um, in terms of retirement, she does plan to do some more extensive traveling after her mom's gone. So we didn't know, just if we were put a number on it, we, we planned for um, another four years. So if, if Dorothy lived till age 95, then uh, from there on, the planning from a, a travel perspective would make sense. And she likes her vehicle, replace that every 10 years, and a budget of 30000 to replace her vehicle with inflation. And the next car is due next year, 2021. She wants to update it. She had some estate goals. She um, she is planning to spend her capital. There's really nobody that she needs to worry about looking after going forward. Uh, but at the same time, you know, whatever's left, it will go to charity first, probably, family and uh, friends beyond that. And she wants to reduce her probate, fees, legal fees, et cetera, taxes, et cetera. And um, was just concerned about her beneficiaries uh, and updating the beneficiaries. Now, when we started getting into the recommendations, you know, we, we take all of this information and her net worth today would be um, about $500,000 in non-registered investments. So that was about $100,000 that was in cash and GICs, 500000 uh, sorry, 400000 which was in investments, and then there was a $100,000 loan against that. And then in terms of uh, registered investments, she had 720000 in her RRSP and 80000 in the TFSA, so 800000 in registered investments. So total net worth of $1.2 million. She doesn't own a home anymore. She hasn't, so she's just renting. And um, cash flow-wise, she has um, some pensions and CPP and her OAS and... Uh, and it, it, it works out to, with her, and then with her business income, it's about uh, 53000 a year. So what were the recommendations? You know, and we take all of this information and we create a, a, created a comprehensive plan for her to look at all aspects of her financial life. And, you know, in the process of a financial plan, we start off with a draft. And the draft is just sort of putting all the pieces into one place to look at things and start to look at different strategies that we can use and the impact of those strategies as we layer them on each other uh, to see the benefit for her going forward. So some simple things, obviously maximizing your TFSA, we'll talk about that a little bit. Old age security clawback. The big recommendation here was that she should, she should start her RIF now. And so at 720000 the minimum withdrawal for her RIF is 28800 per year. And so she could take that out right now and, uh, and not have any clawback, right, the way we worked it out. And, um, and then by the time she's 71, if she just left her RSP to grow, it would, be, it would have been worth 875000 at age 5%, which compounds this problem. And she would have had to take at age 71, 46000 a year. And she was actually going to have about $200 a month of old age security clawback. So um, the RIF payments can top up her TFSA every year. And um, I think it made sense for her to continue to use the leverage strategy because she was comfortable with that. 
going forward. And the plan would be to every 10 years using that to pay for a car. We did talk about changing up the investments to what we call F-class or U-series. And what that means is that any fees or advisory fees she pays are tax deductible. We talked about a liquidation order when she needs money, her RSPs, her non-registered, and then her TFSA. Made some recommendations about her estate in terms of prepaying the funeral, setting up a Henson Trust for her sister, Kim, and also long-term care insurance for her own. She's on her own, so she's going to need some help down the road. How might that happen? And an alter ego trust was also a strategy for her to be able to transfer and minimize estate taxes. So at the end of the day, the results, we looked at every... From a tax perspective, she's actually going to pay more tax now because of those RSP RIF withdrawals, but less tax from age 71 on. And so uh, we used up the capital losses. We did a Monte Carlo analysis, and she has a 100% success rate. And we were actually able to increase her net worth by about 165000 And her net estate, which was significant at $2.6 million, was 210000 higher uh, with the new plan, and uh, the bottom line was, I told her, Judy, you got to spend more. You've got hmm. <laughs> you've got money here that you can enjoy. Uh, your goal is not to leave a large estate. So let's uh, hopefully the tra- hopefully the traveling will use that up. There's advice you want to hear. Uh, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. 905-529-7165. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button or listen to old archive shows. All right, we're talking about cottages and transferring them to the next generation. Yes, and uh, tis the season now. Everybody is up there, I'm sure, those who have cottages or have visited their cottage. Um, you know, fought off the mosquitoes, perhaps. So I'm not sure if the black flies are out yet, Scott. What, what's happening up north? Oh, yeah, come and gone. Still there. So, so anyway, it's... Uh, now, the question comes, you know, they have a lot of great memories, and it seems to be there's always an emotional attachment to a cottage, more so than pretty much almost any other asset, it seems. You know, you can, you, you'll sell the house um, to, you know, to a stranger, and you'll... It doesn't really matter who ends up buying it, to be honest, but a lot of people that own cottages want to have the cottage stay in the family. And, you know, and how do you go about doing this? And the first question you should ask, do the kids really want to own it? <laughs> okay. It might be your dream. But, I, you know, it's kind of interesting because I've actually had a number of cottage owners, and I brought that to their attention. says, well, have you asked the kids? Because we're trying to work out a plan to divide it amongst, there are three kids. And they went to all three kids and said, no, I don't want to go. You know, it's been great going up and visiting you, mom and dad, over the years, but I really, we don't want to have the upkeep. We don't want to be tied to it. I'm going to be moving out to BC, all sorts of different things. My, my fiancé, my husband, my wife, you know, they, they like cottages, but they don't love cottages. So there's a lot more things that come on into it. So the first thing you need to do is ask these six questions. Who wants it? And if the answer is no one, well, that makes it pretty easy. You can just sell it 
and take some of those proceeds and maybe travel with the, with the uh, family. Use it for different ways because usually what the cottage represents is a family get-together. And so, therefore, if you're not going to go to the cottage and you're going to have all this money from the sale of the cottage, maybe use it for a, a group vacation once a year for the next 10 years or use it for a mother purpose. But if all of them still want the cottage, next question would be, how will these costs be covered? And how do you cover all these costs? So this is one of the stickiest points because not everybody, all your kids can afford it. And quite often only one of the kids can afford it and maybe the other two can't depending on how many kids you have. And that's a real stickler. So this one here often looks at, okay, well, all three kids or two kids or whatever the number of kids are do want the cottage, but how do we split this up? Is perhaps money isn't the thing. Maybe you can do make it out where there's labor. So I'll, I'll open the cottage and I'll close the cottage. I'll do the maintenance. Uh, perhaps there's a, uh, somebody who's a carpenter, and they can build the gazebo or the dock in lieu of putting money towards the cottage for the expenses every year. And that could, that could easily um, even things up because it's a lot, you know, a lot better than trying to hire a carpenter. And certainly up in the Muskoka area or wherever you happen to have that cottage, they, these carpenters are pretty much in demand, and you know, they can cost a lot of money. So it's nice to have a handy person in the mix that can do these uh, fix-up jobs for you. Um, the next question is, can the family work together? Do they get along? And that's, uh, you know, maybe your son and daughter or, or whatever you have do get along very well together, but maybe the, the in-laws don't. And so, again, this is a real sticking point. So you may have to look at, well, if they're not going to get together, this is end up just going to be a lot of fighting. Again, maybe we go back to resorting, so just sell it. But if they do get along, great. And now we have to, again, go to the next question. And what are the rules for sharing? You know, and some will say, well, we can go up as often as you want. Others will say, well, let's make it like a timeshare. And you get two weeks in July, two weeks in August, two weeks in September, and uh, vice versa. And then they say, okay, well, if you do have it, can friends come up and stay without the other person being there. And so the problem, you know, it's always easy if it's just yourself owning the cottage because it's you and your husband or wife owning a cottage, and therefore it's not that too difficult. But as soon as you end up with a lot of families owning the same property, it gets tricky. And so how do we transfer it um, down, down the road? And so there's a lot of questions. The one I often look at is, can the, fair, can the parents, this is kind of the bonus question, can the parents really afford to pass it on to the, to the next generation as far as their financial plan? Because the cottage is a lifestyle asset, and it has absorbed a lot of money over the years in terms of your lifestyle dollar. And so can you just say, okay, that $500,000 cottage, I don't need it for retirement at all. I can gift it to the kids or I can sell it to the kids at a better price or what have you. So there's lots of, lots of strategies you need to look at. One of the things is, is you do need an agreement. And this agreement should be in writing is who's going to pay the bills when you, try, you know, when you pass this on to the next generation. You don't need three people or two people paying the bills. You only need one person. Um, the physical labor part. Who's going to open and close the cottages? Who's going to do all the different things, cutting down trees, etc.? cetera? Uh, general rules of use. So every time one person leaves, uh, is, that, is that boat filled with gas? 
or can we leave it empty? Uh, who's going to put, are you taking all the garbage out, clean the sheets, what have you? The next person that goes in there generally wants it to be nice and clean. And it's actually interesting, even though everybody can afford it and you've got it all worked out, everybody gets along, nobody really wants to clean the other person's use of the cottage. Uh, the succession planning. This gets very tricky. So what happens when your child passes on? Then you have an ex-wife or husband owning the cottage with them. So now you need almost like a buy-sell agreement for your kids so that if one of them dies, the, the owners, which are your kids, have the first right of refusal. They can buy it off them. And if they can't buy it on, off them, then there may be a forced sale. Uh, again, these are all the things that need to be done ahead of time because what happens, this, it's basically a partnership. And you can understand when you're owning a business, you need a partnership agreement. Well, this is like a cottage agreement. So you, everything's written down. It kind of seems funny. Um, you know, people often go in too much detail, but it's, these, these are all basically argument avoiders, things to help you to avoid arguments down the road. And then uh, decisions about the cottage. How are we going to make a decision about the cottage? If there's three kids that own it, is it majority rules? Or uh, do we just go, it has to be unanimous. Everybody has to agree on it. So, for example, uh, there might be a tree hugger in the family, and they love the trees. Others may say, I, I want to see the view of the lake. So now one wants to cut down a tree, and one wants to see the view of the lake. Uh, how do you break that tie? <laughs> okay. So lots of discussions when it comes to the cottage. But if you can get through all this minutia of kind of issues about owning a cottage, how do you actually pass it on? And so the very first way is simply, okay, I'm just going to give it to the kids. Well, that sounds great on paper, but when you gift it to your kids, you're basically, it's treated as if you sold it to them at the fair market value. So therefore, if you bought the cottage say back in 1980 for 100,000 and it's now worth 500,000. And you there you go it's yours. Well, it's sold even though you didn't receive the the money. It's as if it was sold at 500,000 and there's a $400,000 capital gain. Now, half of that's taxable, so 200,000 would be added to your income, and if you're in the top tax bracket, that's $100,000 in tax you have to pay. So, even if you gifted it, you still have to pay $100,000 in income tax. So the other option, sometimes, and I know, Andy, you talked about this before, of in the past of using the cottage as your principal residence. And this is, option, this is definitely an option. So if you look at uh, you know, people in Hamilton or so forth, they have a house in Hamilton, for example, and they have a cottage. And let's say it's in Muskoka. Perhaps the cottage in Muskoka grew a lot faster than the house in Hamilton. And therefore, by using the house in the cottage in Hamilton, as, uh, sorry, the cottage as your principal resident, it, it qualifies for the principal resident exemption. So you don't pay tax at all. So you can pass it on to the kids without paying any tax. Now, you got to be, you also then realize that when you do sell your principal residence, it's taxable at that time. And therefore, that's when the big tax, so you got to make sure it makes sense. Um, if you, number, it, let's say you bought the cottage in 1980, 400000 as I said, and by 1994, it had gone up to 200000 Well, the reason I bring this up is a lot of people are forgetting about this, um, 
basically it was a capital gains freeze. Remember that there, Andy? Yes, exactly, in 1994. Yes. And, and you know what? We have to re- remind clients about this because they have to go back to their 1994 tax return. If there's one tax return you should keep if you own a cottage, it's that tax return because it will prove that you changed, moved the book value from, say, 100000 to 200000 on February 22nd of 1994. And therefore, you don't have to pay tax on that $100,000 of growth. And that, that's a nice thing. So therefore, if you bought it for 100000 in 1980 and then you sold it to your kids or you gifted it to your kids at 500000 well, really the book cost is now $200,000, not a hundred, because you're, you're able to use that freeze back in 1994. The hardest thing with that freeze is people remembering they did it in the first place. They often paid for an appraiser way back then, but that's, you know, we're talking 26 years ago. So it's going back a ways. The other part is doing some home improvements, renovations, massive renovations, adding a dock. It's keeping those receipts. And let's say you did $100,000 in some sizable improvements. So now your book cost has gone from 100000 to 200000 because of the capital gain freeze. Then you've also done $100,000 in, in um, improvements. So now your cottage book value is actually 300000 now. So then when you gifted it at 500000 there's only a $200,000 um, uh, capital gain. Half Keep going, Don. Keep... that you did originally. Keep going, Don, because we can get maybe they'll pay us. Yeah, to no take kidding. It. We're going to get this down to zero if we can here. And actually, there is a way to do that, but we'll we'll, we'll get there. And the whole point is, is that just saves you from paying a hundred thousand dollars in income tax down to fifty thousand dollars in income tax, simply by using that freeze that you did years ago and adding up all those all those improvements. Now, one thing you can do is you can sell it to your kids. But you got when you sell it to your kids, a lot of people say, "I'll oh, just sell it at a at a great deal." And the problem with this is you can get hit by double taxation. So let's say you sold that five hundred thousand dollar cottage for four hundred thousand. Well, on paper that's great, but you still have to pay taxes if you sold it for five hundred thousand. So the government will say, "Okay, well, it's fair market value is five hundred thousand." The problem is, is the kids, their cost base goes down to four hundred thousand. So when they sell it. It's as if they paid 400000 for it. So, therefore, that first, if they were to sell it, say, two years later for 500000 they end up paying $100,000 in, ca- in uh, tax on $100,000 of uh, capital gains. So you end up paying the tax on that $100,000 increase twice. So the way to get around that is simply doing, do a promissory note. You can sell it to the kids for a lesser amount, but just say you sold, so you get your four hundred thousand from the kids in this example, and there's a hundred thousand dollar promissory note that is forgiven at death for the other hundred. So on paper, it was sold for five hundred thousand dollars, and therefore, and they never paid the the extra hundred thousand. Um, now, if you are going to sell it, now the problem I know Andy mentioned about the capital gains exemption in trying to get people basically use their RIF earlier to spread, you know. Start paying tax on that risk so you don't get dinged with that capital gains exemption. Well, the same thing happens with selling your cottage. If you were to sell the cottage, and you can sell it and have it paid back to you over five years. So if you sold it to your kids for 500000 in this example again, have them pay you back $100,000 a year in a promissory note. 
that spreads that capital gain over five years. And in this example, if you did that, if there was a $100,000 capital gain, then you're only going to pay tax on $20,000 each year for five years. And that may avoid, especially if you get to split that with your spouse, that may avoid you putting you into either a higher tax bracket or losing some of your old age security by having it all happen in one year. So that's another way. And a lot of people, again, it really comes down to having some time sitting down with a financial planner and going through all your options. Because this is a massive decision on how to go about it. And literally, we've already shown a way to save you $50,000 in income tax. Well, it could even be more than that if you spread it over five years. And finally, there's one last use, is uh, using a family trust. So if you take this cottage and put it into a family trust, you still get to control the cottage. You still get to use the cottage. But it, and it does shelter the cottage from credit, um, creditors. And also, upon your death, it all, it, there's no probate fees because it's still in this trust. Now, when you do move it into a trust, it's as if you sold it at fair market value again going into the trust. So you can't get away from that capital gains. And it, one of the disadvantages is you cannot use that as a principal residence once it's in a trust. So, you won't, so if that was one of your strategies, I'll use this as my principal residence rather than my home, you, do, you should not use a family trust. Um, but the nice thing is, upon your death, automatically the beneficiaries would be the kids. You can have rules for the kids so that they will have their, all those rules we talked about earlier about how much they can use it, what they can do, they could sell it. Um, and in the one real disadvantage, I would say, with using a trust is every 21 years, the trust is deemed to have sold itself. So if, if you did, say, put it into the trust for 500000 21 years later it's worth a million dollars, it's as if you sold it again right then and you had another $500,000 capital gain. So every 21 years you have to be very cognizant about that rule, the 21-year rule. But other than that, at the end of the day, I know... Financial planning, um, Andy and I go through all these situations. There's basically, this is a whole session just on cottage planning. And whether you're trying to figure out a RIF rule and trying to you know, make sure you're not paying too much tax on your RFP assets, this is just another strategy or, or a lot of strategies to make sure you don't pay too much tax on selling your cottage. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. All right, gentlemen, talking about creating your retirement income plan. Yeah, Scott, I think, you know, you know, most of us have a vision about what our retirement's kind of going to look like and, and be, and you kind of get excited about that. But the question is, you know, how much retirement income are you going to have and how much will you need? And this is all about the process that we use called creating your retirement income plan. So 
The first thing is obviously just kind of understanding what sources of income you're going to have, and I'll quickly run through these. There's government sources, which would every old age security, guaranteed income supplement, Canada pension plan, when to start that. Employment-related sources, which could be a company pension plan, maybe you've got a group RRSP, maybe there's a deferred profit sharing plan at your workplace, uh, and then personal sources, which would be your own registered investments, RSPs, TFSAs, Liras, etc., non-registered investments, guaranteed investment funds. These are um, insure, uh, mutual funds issued by um, insurance companies, any annuities you might have, and then certainly your home equity as well. And then other sources might be part-time work, if you've got a second career, maybe income from a rental property, maybe there's business assets, um, maybe you've got equity in a vacation property or, or rental income from a vacation property. So all of these different things come into play. And I think that when you've got these multiple retirement income sources, it also multiplies the complexity of the whole process. And, um, you know, I, I think that the goal, our goal is to, to create what we call your retirement paycheck is just kind of understanding where all these sources and how best to access them when you need to, uh, when you're ready to retire. So we sort of come up with four steps that we think about in terms of the retirement income plan process. And the first step is just understanding Canada's retirement income system. And we spent many a show talking about uh, CPP, uh, guaranteed uh, income supplement, old age security, the allowance. So that's sort of tier one of the Canadian uh, retirement income system. Tier two is pension plans. So these would be private pension plans, group RRSPs. So you might be getting a source of income from your, from your employer. How do you take it? Should it be a joint survivor, et cetera? And then tier three is your personal savings. And uh, so that's sort of step one, looking at all those different sources. And then step two is developing that retirement income plan. And, uh, you know, I think the, the, the part of this process is, you know, as Don and I kind of talked about, it's really about creating a two-person, 30-year income plan for most of us. And so it all starts with identifying, you know, what are the expenses? What are your expenses going to be? What Some might be decreasing or eliminated, and others might be uh, increasing. Um, you know, we, we, we have to calculate all of your income sources as well. We need to account for inflation for your investment portfolio as well over time. You think about that 30-year span. And, of course, being able to weather volatility, as we've seen in the, in the recent months and recent years as well. And you really want to create that sort of steady income stream for yourself, and I think the key thing, understanding all those sources of income are going to come from, some are going to be weekly, some are monthly, maybe some are yearly, and really trying to understand, do we have a base of guaranteed income that meets your essential expenses wherever possible? And that gives you sort of peace of mind and security as you head into retirement. Step three is about being tax efficient in the income plan, splitting income with your spouse, investing in uh, mutual funds that you can perhaps receive a portion of income from the uh, fund earnings or maybe a portion of the return from the initial investment, withdrawing maybe just the minimum from your RIF or maybe more, non-registered investments that are tax-preferred, uh, maybe corporate class, how to use that TFSA and withdrawals from TFSA, what about working part-time, What is how does that affect any of these clawbacks, and then um, step four is about consolidating and simplifying. Once we've got this sort of plan in place, I think that the issue, and we've talked about this before, people don't want to have all their eggs in one basket, but at the end of the day, it's a complex situation, and you don't want to miss any opportunities. And I find that when you've got little pieces all over the place, it kind of makes it hard to really 
enhance that income because I think there's opportunities to do that in, in everyone's plan, but also um, reduce taxes as well. We can be more tax efficient. And, you know, the time to move money between institutions and costs, et cetera, all of that has to be taken into consideration as well. But essentially, the goal of consolidating is really to simplify your various sources of income and, um, you know, revisiting that plan regularly to account for any changes in your life. And, uh, you know, maybe it's caring for parents, like I talked about earlier, or a parent. Maybe it's your own health care needs, et cetera. So, uh, you know, this is a... Uh, an ongoing process that isn't a one-time shot, there's no doubt about it, but in creating a retirement income plan, I think if it's done properly, you're going to feel more confident about your retirement, you're going to feel more confident about the your ability to spend, and and I think that's where, you know, when you think about retirement, it, it's, it's really about peace of mind, is having that regular retirement paycheck. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. There you can ask questions via the listener inquiry button and as well listen to old archive shows. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. All right, uh, what do you do with all the money you've saved from not going out due to COVID-19? Do we have that much? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Speaking to a few people in the last week or so, they're saving a lot of money. Like one of the big ones would be daycare. Um, stay-at-home parents now, uh, it may be frustrating, but they're still saving a lot of money. Uh, going to the malls, they're saving. They're, obviously, people are not going to restaurants. They may be going to t- getting takeout delivery. Uh, certainly, uh, concerts and sporting events are things of a past right now. I'm sure everybody's missing. But this is money we used to spend. And where's it going? What are you doing with it? And, you know, Scott, will you, have you spent any money recently? No, just on masks and PPE supplies. <laughs> yeah, those are a lot of fun things to spend. How about yourself, Andy? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I don't know why I sort of started this, but I decided that I was not going to go to the LCBO or the beer store. And since March 15th or March, whatever that started, I have not been there and I haven't ordered anything from there. So I've saved a lot of money on wine and et cetera. Well, wait a and, sec. Uh, That's where a lot of my expense is gone right there. Yeah. Well, Andy must have had a big stash, though. <laughs> I've been working my way through it. I'm into some. I'm into some weird things now, but uh, that that have been on the shelf for a while. But that's okay. There's some. There's some history, like vintage alcohol. I think they call it. But um, no, we took some. Sa- we took some of those savings and we bought a 3D printer, which has been an exciting uh, addition and yeah. some of a creative element, creative outlet. Yeah, and also it's a, kind of a hobby at the same time. Yeah, and and this is what uh, we're finding is there's some new hobbies people are getting because. It's almost like staycations. What are we going to do if we're going to stay home? Find other things to do. And this, mind you, this great Canadian save-a-thon is starting to end. 
I mentioned earlier, um, the March spending was down 37%. That's what people spent 37% less in March, and now it's down to 13% according to RBC. And because people are starting to use restaurants more, delivery, and, uh, you know, I know you might see the Uber Eats uh, or, and things or people are using different ones to deliver food. Um, that being said, I, I think if you want to really help out the restaurants, you don't use Uber because they do take 30% of, their, of the cost. They add 30% to the restaurants. Um, so that's a lot of the profit. So if you went directly to the restaurant, you'd be helping the restaurant a lot more. Uh, but people are, you know, one good thing would be building up a ma- an emergency fund just in case you are laid off down the road because, you know, you're obviously working now because you're saving money. But that could change. And if you all of a sudden are laid off or working less hours, I've also heard of a lot of people that have taken a, a 20% hit because they're only working four days a week. So, therefore, you know, build that fund up so until things kind of go back to the way they were. Um, pay down debt. If you got this extra money... Certainly, credit card debt, uh, even as you know, certain car loans. Certain, if you look at how much you're paying on certain things per month, and if there's a big item that was costing you, say, a thousand dollars a month, and you could pay it off, that, that would, if you were ever were laid off, that's a thousand dollars a month you don't have to come up with anymore. So paying down some of those um, debts you have would be a huge advantage, particularly if you do lose your income. Uh, there's been a, you know, Canadians are, are very well known that we had a high level of debt. It wasn't just a year ago that we were talking about Canadians' highest debt level in forever. And now they are paying down their credit cards and paying down any sources. And this is a great opportunity. We, basically, it's almost like a reset button. We have no choice. We, we can't go spend it, so it has to go somewhere. So my, my suggestion would not be to leave it sitting in your savings account, but have it go directly against those line of credits or your credit cards right away, and uh, therefore you're not, you know, bringing up those interest costs. And there's, you know, everybody's tra- traveling a lot less, and so what's happening is I do know some companies, if once you, you do go back to work, because there's a lot of people who are working from home, you won't get the same perks. And some of those perks are kind of built into your income such as your per diems and where you're getting paid so much to eat out while you're entertaining or hotel and airline points that were used for vacations. So you may have to start saving for those items that you didn't used to have to save for. And certainly, if you were saving on daycare costs, maybe that extra daycare money could go towards the RESPs for the kids. And what a great opportunity to build up their uh, nest egg for their own education down the road. And so... If you were to say, okay, I'm going to save some, but I want to have some fun. I'm going to get like a 3D printer, for example. I see a lot of people are getting bikes. It's funny enough, uh, inner tube sales are up 400% right now because people are bringing out their old bikes and getting them working again. Um, you know, maybe getting a bird feeder. People are hanging around the backyard and they're saying, wow, there's a lot of birds that hang around here. There's a lot of hobbies people are kind of getting into at this stage, building a deck, you know, if you're going to stay around home and making a stay vacation, you might as well have some fun doing it and, we're, and use those lockdown savings to make the best of it. 
We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button, as well as listen to old archive shows. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. Thanks. Take care, Scott. Bye now. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.